0: Can I return with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16? We are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves in a rather controversial section. It starts in verse 13 runs through verse 20. Jesus and his disciples were up in the area of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi when he turned to them and said to them one day, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, you know, word in the street is that you're Elijah or Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or literally, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you are Peter, he said in verse 18. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As we have pointed out, this is without a doubt one of the most controversial, misunderstood, and misapplied passages in the Bible. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church has built their entire church on verses 18 and 19, claiming Peter was appointed by Jesus right here to be the Pope the rock, the foundation upon which Jesus was going to build his church, the Roman Catholic Church. And then from Peter, the church teaches that an unbroken line of popes, uh, the bishops of Rome, uh, succeeded from Peter down through the centuries to the present day. And if you weren't here last week, we talked about this whole idea of Peter being the rock. Last week in our study, get the CD if you really want to get into that. But let's continue on. He said, upon this rock... I'm going to build my church. The word church there is the Greek word ekklesia. And it literally means an assembly of called out ones. It speaks of those who have been called out of the world. Separated to live a life of service to God. God calls these folks, Christians, the church, his own special people. The Greek word here, ekklesia, always refers in the New Testament to people, never a building. We know that. Because the church didn't even start meeting in formal buildings for church until the 4th century. Now here's the thing about Jesus' church. Okay, you, can, you can enter a building. You can join a physical church. When we talk about Jesus' church, His body on the earth, you can't join this church. You have to be born into it. And that's what He talked about in John 3. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to be born into it. You have to be born from above. How does that take place? By you giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ, making Him your Savior and your Lord. It's easy to go into a church, but that will not save you. You have to be in His church, which means you have to be born into it by giving your heart and life over to Jesus Christ to be your master. Now, he goes on, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, if you're reading out of the King James Version, the word hell is found there in verse 18. But it's not really the word hell, it's the Greek word Hades, not the same place. Uh, The word Hades is comparable to the Hebrew word Sheol, which is used in the Old Testament to describe the same place, Sheol, Hades, same place, okay, The, the grave, the abode of the dead. Hades is located in the center of the earth and is a temporary place of incarceration, a holding tank, if you will where all unbelievers are kept after they die until the great white throne judgment. You can read about that in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. But after these folks, these unbelievers are sentenced. It's really not a trial. It's a sentencing phase. They're already guilty. They are cast into the lake of fire, hell. And at that time, death in Hades is also cast into the lake of fire and is no more. Uh, So that's Revelation 20, verse 14. But what did Jesus mean when he said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church? Well, guys, he's not speaking literally here of gates and so on. Let me give you the three most popular, most, um, well, I guess the popular interpretations that are most common for this verse. Number one, some interpret this to mean it's a reference to Satan's offensive attacks against the church. Many see in this a promise. That no matter how the devil comes against the church, it will survive all attacks. It will never be destroyed. The problem with that interpretation is it's awkward. It's awkward because gates are not really uh, offensive weapons of warfare. I don't know any soldier who's going to battle and a gate came flying at him. Okay? Gates are not offensive weapons of warfare. The purpose of a gate is to keep people inside from getting out. If you're talking about a prison... Or to keep enemies on the outside from getting in, if you're talking about a city under siege. And that brings us to the second interpretation of this statement. A promise of victory given to the church in coming against Satan's kingdom. In the Bible, gates are used to represent the place of authority and power. You read read Genesis chapter 19 verse 1. It opens up by saying that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? Well, in the Jewish mind, the city gate or gates were the place where the city leaders or the aldermen would conduct city business. It was also the place where court cases were heard. And so Lot was an alderman in the city of Sodom, which was sad for a believer. And so many interpret this to mean that the gates of Hades symbolize Satan's kingdom, his power and authority. And so they interpret this to mean that Jesus is promising his church that as we storm Satan's kingdom to set prisoners free that he has taken captive. Those gates, or in other words, his power and authority will not prevail against us. We will be victorious. That's a good interpretation, good and solid. Well, the third interpretation is simply that the gates of Hades symbolically represent death. And so the idea is that the gates of death shall not prevail against Christ's church. Now, you have to understand that the Jews understood Hades to be, again, the grave, the abode of the dead. And so in their minds, it symbolized death. And I think this is probably the best interpretation of the three. Although I do in some ways agree with both of the other ones. I think it's best to interpret this, that Jesus was about to conquer the grave through His death and resurrection. And when He did, death would no longer have any power to keep captive those who belong to Him. Remember what He said in John 14, verse 19. Because I live, you will live also. Paul said someday, the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout. I think it's the same kind of shout he shouted at Lazarus' tomb with when he said in John 11, Lazarus, come forth. In the same way the Lord Jesus Christ is going to shout at the graves of all those who belong to him on this earth, his church. And they will come forth, be resurrected, and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then we who are alive on the earth at that time when he comes at the rapture, we will be caught up with them, transformed, given our heavenly bodies as we meet the Lord in the air. And uh, death is once and for all conquered. In fact, Paul the Apostle mentions this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, "Then, When the Lord comes for His church, then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this Scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, it has done because Christ has conquered over it. But then he goes on in verse 19 and says, To Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How are we to understand the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, again, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus was giving Peter as the pope, and of course his successors after him, the authority to open the door of salvation to those who are in good standing with the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and to shut the door by excommunication those who commit mortal sins, which would be adultery, idolatry, murder of some kind, there's others. In Roman Catholic theology, if a Roman Catholic commits a mortal sin, the church teaches their friendship with God is broken and they are then now condemned to hell unless they return to God and receive the sacrament of penance. But strict Catholicism teaches there is no salvation apart from fellowship with the church. Uh, you will find that in, in really the Catholic Church teachings. They've kind of relaxed some of it today, but it's still in their dogma. and That there is salvation only through the Roman Catholic Church, They're the true church. And Jesus gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom. And therefore, if you're not a member of the Roman Catholic Church in good standing, in other words, you haven't committed any mortal sins that you haven't repented of and done penance for, you know, then you can be saved. You're on your way to heaven. Of course, you probably have to go to purgatory for a few million years to work off some of those sins you've committed. But that's another Catholic Church teaching that I don't find in the Bible. But you get the idea, okay? And again, they believe that Jesus gave to Peter the authority, the keys, to open the door of salvation or the church to those who are in good standing with the Roman Catholic Church and to shut and lock the door to those who are not in good standing with the church. And they say this is what is meant by binding and loosing. Again, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the Jewish rabbis did speak of binding and loosing in terms of prohibiting and permitting. That was a common uh, rabbinic uh, phrase. Binding and loosing means permitting and then prohibiting. And again, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter was given the authority to bind and loose. In other words, to prohibit or to permit entrance into heaven to those he deems worthy. And that's given rise to all these jokes about Peter standing by the pearly gates of heaven, you know, uh, and everybody who dies has got to come before him, and then he evaluates whether or not they're worthy to enter into heaven or not, whether they're going to be permitted to enter or, you know, prohibited. And it all comes basically from this idea here. Now, while it's true that Jesus gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the power to bind and loose was later expanded by Jesus to include the rest of his disciples. In fact, if you, you don't have to really turn there, but Matthew 18, verse 18, listen to what the Lord said to his disciples. Matthew 18, verse 18, he said, Assuredly I say to you, and the you there in the Greek is plural, he's talking to all of his disciples who would go on to be leaders of the church. He said, Assuredly I give to all you guys, okay? Uh, I say to you, whatever you all bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, binding, loosing, permitting, forbidding, that kind of a thing. The context is church discipline. If you read the context of Matthew 18 in these verses, what Jesus is saying, and I'll paraphrase, he's saying, look, you guys are going to become leaders of the local churches eventually. And as leaders of the local church, I'm giving you the authority to deal with sin in the midst of the church. He's talking about church discipline there. Church discipline. And the idea is, in a local church setting, if somebody gets into sin and they're continuing in that sin, then the local church leaders are to call that person in to them, confront them with this sin, challenge them to repent of it, and if they do, they are then loosed, or in other words, permitted to remain in the local church. If they refuse to repent, they are bound, or in other words, excluded from fellowship with the local church until they get it right with God. So here we see that that phrase is really broadened to include all leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. But again, what about Jesus giving Peter the keys of the kingdom? What does that mean? Again, I told you what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but let me just make this very simple because that's where I'm coming from. Just, if the simplest explanation fits, why look for something deeper? Okay, I'll I'll draw your attention, although you don't have to turn there, to John 10, verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In other words, Jesus was likening himself to the door of salvation. We'll say the door to the kingdom of heaven, a door that is locked and only one key can open that door. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Think of Jesus Christ as the doorway that leads to salvation, a door that is locked, but the key of the gospel will open that door and allow you to enter into Christ and be saved. Now you say, well, you're reading a little bit into that, don't you think? Well, in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers! <laughs> Nothing has changed. Um, sorry. I just couldn't help myself, but <laughs> He's talking about he's talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, doctors of the law, right? He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away, listen, the key of knowledge, talking about the gospel. You did not enter in yourselves, talking about entrance into the kingdom, and those who were entering in you hindered. And the idea is Jesus came to bring the gospel of grace. The gospel alone which can open the door of salvation to those who are lost. He came with a very simple message. You want to be saved? Come to me. Here's the gospel. Believe on me. Give your life to me. You shall be saved. You'll enter into me and be saved. You'll find salvation. Pharisees and scribes, they didn't like that because they were too busy working for their salvation and didn't want anyone to rob them of the boasting that came with all the good things they were doing to earn their salvation. So they were telling people, oh, listen to Jesus, he's from Satan. Remember in Matthew 12? You know, he's, he's of the devil. And Jesus said, you know, here I came with the key, the key of knowledge, the key of the gospel that will let people into salvation. But you are standing in the way You've taken away the key of the gospel from people. You yourselves are not entering into the kingdom and you're keeping others from entering in also. Listen, if we look at the keys of the kingdom as the keys of the gospel that opens the door of salvation to people, we understand that Jesus, uh, that excuse me, Peter was given the privilege of opening the door of salvation through the preaching of the gospel, first of all to the Jews at Pentecost, Acts 2, next to the Samaritans in Acts 8, verse 14, and then finally to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Hence the keys of the kingdom, plural. God blessed Peter by calling him to unlock the door of salvation to the Jews, the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. But the other apostles shared in this privilege as well. Because Paul had the privilege of opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles outside of Israel. Acts 14, 27 tells us. And... We're going to make this a very broad application, which I think we could. In the broadest sense, Jesus has given to all of his disciples the keys of the kingdom. All of us. Because he commissioned all of us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person. Every time you preach the gospel to somebody and they receive Christ, in a sense you've taken the gospel key and opened the door of salvation for them. So in that regard, as disciples of Jesus, we're all called to preach the gospel and to uh, help people to enter into Christ through the gospel, so I believe the Catholic Church is wrong in how they interpret Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But let's finish the passage. In verse 20, he says, "It says then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ." Now, that sounds like a strange command, doesn't it? You think to yourself, well, didn't he want people to know who he was so that they would believe in him and be saved? Of course he did, but you have to understand something now. We're getting very close to the cross. By this time, Jesus had gone all up and down Israel, in the Galilee, all down in Judea. He had gone beyond the borders of Israel, up into Lebanon, okay, Tyre and Sidon and so on, preaching the gospel, telling people, who he was. We, as we read John's Gospel especially, the Greek is very specific that he continually told people he was the Son of God. That he was the Messiah and so on. It was not an isolated thing. Everywhere he went he kept teaching people who he was. By this time, pretty much everybody had heard about him. Had heard what he was saying about himself. And pretty much everyone had made up their mind. So he's saying, look at guys, I've already told everybody basically who I am. So don't go anymore telling people I'm the Christ, okay? You're going to put that on hold now. The day is coming soon when you will go out into all the world and preach that again to everybody you come in contact with. But for right now, you're going to focus with me on the final stretch to the cross, okay? I don't want you telling anybody I'm the Christ anymore because it will only inflame my enemies and and cause them to want to kill me before my time. It will only encourage my followers to want to... Take me by force and make me king. And I'm on my father's timetable here. So we're going to, you know, as the scriptures say, at one point Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Because the preaching had come to an end now. Now he was preparing for the cross. And so I see that uh, really is the interpretation of verse 20. But okay. Last week I left you kind of with a cliffhanger. And um, let me just restate once again. Okay, in case you're new with us. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. My wife was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I went to Catholic grade school. She went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. We have many family members who are still Catholics. We love Catholics, okay? Honestly, we do. What I'm about to say is I hope you don't take as an attack on you as a Catholic, okay? I love Catholics. I believe the Roman Catholic Church is involved in some serious error serious error and last service I told people because God put it on my heart in the way over here look if you're here this morning and maybe you're here for the first time okay you're thinking what in the lord's name have I got myself into with this guy okay you know and and, and that might be true and I, I can't answer that completely for you. you have to figure figure it out for yourself all right my wife my wife has asked that question over the years so, so I can't help you all right? But, but here's the deal, alright? There's no accidents in God's kingdom. If you're here this morning, you are here by divine appointment. So God obviously knowing, I would have, well He would put it in my heart, okay, what to teach on this morning. And having brought you here this morning, that your life would intersect with this message, know one thing. God has brought you here. So at least try to keep an open mind. What I'm about to tell you is historical fact. You can dig it, and I encourage you to read Catholic historians, guys like Peter De Rosa, Will Durant, uh, Ignaz von Dollinger. These are devout Catholics who are honest enough to give us the history of the Roman Catholic Church. It's, this is not—I'm not making this up. I'm just trying to show you, as I love you as a Roman Catholic, that the system you're involved in is not of God. I don't know how to say that any more gently than that. It is a false religious system that traces its roots back to Babylon. And if you know anything about Babylon, Babylon was the fountainhead of all the false religious systems on the face of the earth. In fact, if you've ever read uh, Alexander Hislop's classic work on this subject called The Two Babylons, he spends a lot of time documenting how that when Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, the pagan priests of what was called the ancient mystery religions, these were a cultic religion centered in Babylon since the time of Nimrod. We read about him in Genesis 10. When the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, these priests were forced to migrate to the north and west to Pergamus in Asia Minor. Where they headquartered these false mystery religions for centuries. In fact, they were headquartered in Pergamos when Jesus dictated the letter to the to the church at Pergamos in Revelation 2. And in verse 13, he says, Look, I know where you guys are. You are living where Satan's throne is. Now I encourage you to stop taking my truth and mixing it with this paganism that's what in fact the word pergamus means mixed marriage mixed marriage they were doing that they were the christians there were mixing their christianity with these mystery pagan religions i don't know if you realize this but the pagan high priest in pergamus called himself pontifex maximus that was his title and when Rome rose to power, these priests eventually migrated to Rome. They followed the money and the power. And their pagan Babylonianism got mixed with Christianity and produced Roman Catholicism. You know, to get is Look at some of the holidays. I mean, Christmas, Easter, Easter, Estart, uh, was actually a, a festival to the goddess Estarte. She was a pagan fertility goddess. Uh, her feast was celebrated with Colored eggs and symbols of fertility and and rabbits and things like that. doesn't sound like anything we do today, does it? But I'm saying, you know. (laughs) December 25th was Saturnalia. The time when the sun god was said to have died and was reborn. Okay? Constantine wanted to merge Christianity with paganism because, you know, you couldn't just take these pagan feasts away from these people. I mean, that was all they had. They didn't have five-day work weeks and a two-day weekend every week. They're, they lived, they worked hard all week. They lived for their feast days. He said, well, if I'm going to blend Christianity with paganism, I'm going to have to Christianize these holidays. So Saturnalia became Christmas. Eschart became Easter. And not that I'm saying it's wrong for us to celebrate the birth of Christ and the resurrection. I'm not, I'm not against that. But understand what the roots are, okay? And there's more we could say about that, but I'll let you dig it out for yourself. But you may not realize this, but at first it was the Roman Emperor Constantine who assumed headship of the church, taking the title Pontifex Maximus or the Supreme High Priest. Actually, the word Pontifex means bridge builder, the supreme bridge builder. The idea was somebody who bridged the gap between God, the gods and man. But in Christianity, of course, that title is a reference to the priesthood who bridged the gap between man and God, the mediators who stand between God and the people, something that we talked about Wednesday, is an abomination to God. Jesus died that we won't... He's our mediator. He's made us a kingdom of priests. We have the, we have the right to come boldly into His presence, Hebrews 4, uh, verse uh, 16 tells us. Because of the blood of Christ. You can get that CD if you're interested. We've a lot of people the last couple of weeks. So we, we, you can get that CD if you'd like, okay? Um, but it was Constantine, the Roman emperor, who first assumed headship of the church, taking the title Pontifex Maximus, It was the emperor who was first called the Vicar of Christ, a title that inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire disintegrated. Uh, Also, Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the popes when the Roman Empire fell apart. Thus, the head of the Roman Catholic Church today is called Pontifex Maximus or the Roman Pontiff. In the book of Revelation, John the Apostle was given a prophetic vision of the final events that would lead up to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish His kingdom. We know that Revelation teaches us, along with other places in the Bible, that the world is going to eventually come under the control of the Antichrist who will bring about a one-world government and will have a sidekick that will work with him called the false prophet who will bring about a one-world church. okay, A global church. And these two will work together and this one-world government and global church will be in power when Jesus Christ comes back to establish His kingdom. Turn to, to Revelation 17. Again, in Revelation 17, John describes this world church that is united with the Antichrist kingdom. He calls her the Great Harlot. In verses one through three, he says she's riding on a beast, and you can read that. But I just want to focus on verses four to six this morning. The woman was arrayed, and you can read the whole thing. John sees a woman riding a beast and so on. But the woman was arrayed in in scarlet and purple and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. On her head a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Look at John's description of this woman. Her influence reaches around the world. It's not local, it's global. This harlot is dressed in purple, scarlet, gold, and decked out with jewels. She is unashamedly wealthy, expensively adorned, and outwardly attractive. She carries a golden cup. A golden chalice is really the idea. Uh, No doubt it was shiny, precious, beautiful to behold. And yet this cup is filled, we're told, with abominations. Many commentators associate it with the golden chalice used in the Roman Catholic Mass. She is a persecutor of true believers. She is drunk with their blood. In other words, she hasn't just tasted their blood in the sense of persecuting them a little. She is intoxicated by the blood of the saints. And that word always referred to true Christians. Not a select group that has ascended to some higher level. The word saint there, hagia, same word we get, a uh, Greek word for holy. Uh, same idea, separated once, set apart, church, okay? But she is drunk with the blood of the of the saints, true Christians, whom she has martyred. She is associated with a city, sitting on seven hills or seven mountains, verse 9 tells us. The great city that she's linked to, we are told, rules over the kings of the earth, verse 18 tells us. In John's day, that was a no-brainer because Rome had conquered the world. Rome ruled over the kings of the earth and Rome was built on seven hills. Look, the Vatican to this day is a separate nation. Yes, within Rome, but sovereign. And most Roman Catholics don't realize this. But no organization in the world has martyred or murdered more true Christians than has the Roman catholic church in fact one pope in one day murdered more christians than all the roman emperors put together all you do is read the history of europe most of it's a history of the roman catholic church and in particular the pope's struggles for power they had their own armies and because they controlled so many other nations they had control of their armies and they would send the armies out to broaden their scope to bring more people under the subjugation of the church and uh and many were killed in fact the Roman Catholic Church martyred millions who opposed the Pope's authority over the centuries, uh, over their lives, or who dared to speak out against their immorality and heresies. We talked last week about some of the immoralities of these men. Don't forget now, most Roman Catholics, including myself when I was a part of the church, thought of the Popes as being men of the highest character and virtue. But you have to realize in history that that's not what happened. A lot of these men bought the office of the Pope Okay, Because it had such influence and power associated with it. They actually purchased it. Many of these men weren't even believers. And because of that, they did horrendous things in the name of Christ. Horrendous things. I believe that this harlot called Mystery Babylon here in Revelation 17 is bigger than just the Roman Catholic Church. She is called the mother of all harlots in the face of the earth. I believe the final world religion will be a composite of all false religions, but... I also believe the Roman Catholic Church will be instrumental in bringing them all together. We talked about John Paul II who even back as early as uh, 1999 or so began to call for the leaders of the world's religions to the Vatican there where he was trying to bring things, uh, these religions together. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church for a long time has seen itself as the mother church of a world religion that was coming. Let me just say this, a little footnote. When the rapture happens, All true Christians, I don't care if you're Roman Catholic, Protestant, liberal, there are true believers, I believe, in all of these systems. They will be taken. And what you have left is nothing but the apostate church. Churches that were filled with unbelievers who are left after the rapture and they're going to come together in this one world religion. It's not just the Roman Catholic Church. It's bigger than that. But I do believe they are the ones who... Who are going to organize and be spearheading this final world religion? Just briefly, verse 4 The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having on her head a golden ha- hand, in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. She's decked out in purple. That was the dominant color of Roman imperialism. The Roman Senate wore purple bands in their robes, and the emperor wore robes of all purple. Scarlet, well, that's the color that's been adopted by the Vatican. Uh, I heard a pastor, I know him very well, he went on a tour of the Vatican, okay? And um, he said, he says, I'm on this tour of the Vatican. Of course, they have incredible amount of wealth in, in, uh, in paintings, tapestries, okay? Um, he said, if you tour the Vatican, uh, you'll see a number of paintings of a woman seated upon a scarlet beast that they will tell you represents the Roman Catholic Church. He couldn't believe it. I, said, I, I thought to myself, are you kidding me? You're actually admitting that the woman and the beast in Revelation 17 represents the church? He said "There, there are uh, there is a large tapestry uh, hanging somewhere that he saw, and on that tapestry is a scarlet-colored beast with seven heads. The seventh head has ten horns. There is a prostitute riding that beast, he said, just like in Revelation 17, and there is a sign under the tapestry Uh, that reads the mother church. Now, folks, I don't know. They obviously see themselves as that woman riding that beast. Whether they believe in all the negative ramifications that we think John is trying to get across, I don't know. It's interesting that even they believe they are the woman in John's prophecy riding on that beast. Verse 6, I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The Greek is very strong. I was shocked beyond description. Shocked beyond description. Some people say, wait a minute. This is not the Roman Catholic Church John is seeing. It's the Roman government. It's the Roman Empire. Yes, they persecuted Christians. They killed many Christians. Okay? This is the Roman government that John's talking about, not the Roman Catholic Church. Let me just say this to you. John is a first century guy. Okay? Okay? He's got a vision of the end times, but John lived in the first century. In the first century, when John got this vision, it was about 95 AD. Ever since Nero, in about 68 AD, a wave of persecution started against the church by the Roman government. This would have been nothing new to John. He wouldn't have been shocked and amazed at this, that the Roman government was still persecuting Christians if it was just the Roman government in view. What he is shocked about is that this is not the Roman government it is the, the world church headquartered in Rome, built on seven hills. That's why he's amazed. And furthermore, he was completely shocked, left speechless, because in John's day, the church was small, struggling, persecuted, poor, hiding out. It was pure, though. But here, the church is big, worldwide. It is wealthy beyond imagination. And it is drunk with the blood of God's true people. The church is not made up of God's saints. It is persecuting the true saints of Jesus Christ. Killing them by the millions. John is absolutely dumbfounded. In his mind, I'm sure, he was trying to equate how does a church go from small, insignificant, poor, and persecuted to this massive colossus that is dominating the world in some way, shape, or form killing God's true people well you know what maybe John should remember what the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 13 when he said the kingdom of heaven was like a mustard seed very small but when planted it grows into a very large tree so that all the birds of the air take refuge in its branches well first of all as we pointed out we taught Matthew 13 a mustard seed very small grows into a bush not a great tree And the birds of the air in parables represent Satan and his demons. So I believe what Jesus was teaching, and John should have understood, was that the church was going to start off very small like a mustard seed. But somewhere along the way, Satan would be introduced into it. Where? When the church married itself to paganism. Paganism. Satan was introduced into the church that allowed the church to grow abnormally become some kind of an abnormal organization something very unnatural to what Jesus intended it to be he said my flock is a little flock the church has always been described as a faithful remnant this church is massive it includes a good chunk of the people of the world but it's abnormal it's not what God intended it to be it's a perversion and and that's what I believe John is horrified about He can't understand how the church has gotten to this point. Now, I know at this point, and we'll close. That's enough for today. We'll close and we'll move on. Okay, I promise you, we're done. But I know that maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, but wait a minute. The Roman Catholic Church has done a lot of good for people over the years. And that is absolutely true. I totally agree with that. Catholic Charities has helped millions of people all over the world. The Roman Catholic Church has started orphanages and um, retirement homes and hospitals. Good heavens, they say, Mother Teresa herself, look what she did through her ministry, and that's true. She gave herself to helping the the poorest of humanity there in the streets of Calcutta. But when they interviewed Mother Teresa before she died, she said, it's been my goal. Listen to this. This is a quote from her. It's been my goal to make Hindus the best Hindus they can be, Buddhists the best Buddhists they can be, Muslims are the best Muslims they can be. Well, you know what? If you're not giving people the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't care if you give them nice clean sheets to lay on while they're suffering and you minister to their physical needs. If you're not giving them the truth of Jesus Christ, you are not helping them for eternity and you are launching them into a Christless eternity. How does that really help people? When I think of doing something good for somebody in the spiritual realm, I'm talking about the greatest good. Give them the truth. That they can receive Jesus Christ and know someday when this body wears out, death will not hold them. He will shout their name and they'll be resurrected and caught up to meet Him in the air and will never be separated from Him ever again from that point on. We'll face an eternity of joy inexpressible and full of glory. So, When you talk to your Roman Catholic friends, and I want you to be kind, I want you to be compassionate, this is not about bludgeoning them with the truth. It's about coming alongside them and saying, Look, I was raised in the Catholic Church, if you were, okay? I was raised in the Catholic Church. Let me share what the Scriptures say, though, about salvation. You know, maybe give them a little something to read if they're interested, but help them to come out of that system. We don't love people by saying, well, we love you. Just keep on going on in darkness. My goal is to make you the best Muslim you can be, the best Buddhist, the best Catholic. My goal is to get you saved. My goal is to give you the truth that you would be delivered out of this lie. That goes for Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberal Protestantism, anything false religious system we want to see people delivered from. And maybe at some point, if the Holy Spirit leads you, you can quote them what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which I believe the Holy Spirit had Paul say because the Holy Spirit would someday apply this to those in the Roman Catholic Church or any other false religious system. Let me read what Paul said and we'll close. He said, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan?" Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? I'm sorry, you walk into a Catholic church and there's nothing but idols all over the place. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. In other words, my people come out of this false system. All right? And be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be to you a father. And you shall be to me sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There is only salvation in one church. It isn't the Roman Catholic Church. It's Jesus Christ Church. You have to be born into it. By giving your heart to Jesus, believing in Him as your Savior and Lord. And once you commit your life to Him, receive Him as your Lord. You are, taken, you are born into His church. You become a member of His body. And someday you know that when this earthly body wears out, you'll have a heavenly body prepared that will never die, where your spirit will move into. And that will be a glorious, glorious thing to have happen as we end our pilgrimage on earth and enter into an eternity in our true home of heaven with the Lord. So may God... Use this, hopefully, if you're uh, here today for the first time. It's not always like this, okay? <laughs> we, we try to encourage um, in other ways. Sometimes you happen to be in a passage that deals with controversy. You have to take it. But remember this, there's no accidents in God's kingdom. You're here by divine appointment. God has wanted you to hear this today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for Your truth. Your Word is truth. If we will walk in its light, we'll never stumble in darkness. We'll never be deceived. And we thank You, Lord. Many of us in this room were ex-Roman, are ex-Roman Catholics. And Lord, it was Your Word that I began to read that set me free. As I began to read Your Word and began to see what You actually had to say about salvation, it was very simple. Come to me. Believe on me. You shall be saved. And we thank you, Lord, for the simplicity. You did all the work. All we have to do is believe to be your children. We thank you, Lord. And, Father, we just pray that anyone who is hearing this message, whether right now or maybe on the radio or on CD, touch their hearts, Lord, that they might be set free, their eyes would be opened. You would take them out of darkness, bring them into your marvelous light, that they might enjoy an eternity with you forever. We thank you, Lord, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name.